Uh, welcome to the online ministry of the sermons at Coastal Community Church, and we are so grateful you took time to, to watch this sermon. One of the things that uh, we have a deep conviction of here at Coastal Community Church is that this online sermon that you're downloading or streaming is, is, a, is a supplement to your spiritual growth, and we, we think it's real important that you're a part of a local church. So uh, even as you watch this sermon, and I hope it encourages you and challenges you, uh, I hope that you'll find a local church. Uh, if you live in the Hampton Roads area, I hope that you'll consider checking out Coastal Community Church. We have three services on Sunday morning, uh, 8.15, 9.45, and 11.15. And uh, so we'd love for you, for you to join us at one of those services. I do want to introduce our new sermon series uh, that we're doing. We're taking some time going through 1 Timothy, and we're entitled the series Guarding the Gospel. And uh, the Apostle Paul uh, mentors a young pastor, Timothy, uh, and he talks to him about how to establish a church so that the gospel of Christ can be guarded in a sense that it's pure uh, and kept true and so that it can be um, brought to a lost and dying world. So I hope you'll enjoy this series through Timothy, Guarding the Gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And welcome back college students. Fill you in on what's been going on over the last few months. We've been going through a series called Guarding the Gospel, and we've been walking the church body through uh, just verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy. And, uh, and I think that this series has been extremely relevant for our local church, especially considering uh, what's going on in our culture today and what we see because we have constant news in front of us uh, all of the time. We just have instant access to everything that's going on all over the world. And the more we turn on our news, the more we, we can realize that, that we live in a culture that's hostile toward absolute truth. We live in a culture that's, that's hostile toward absolute truth, and it, and it puts the, the church in a, in a, in a pickle. Right? It, it puts the, the church in a, in, a, in a tough place because the, the Bible doesn't mince words or apologize for the claims that's contained in it. And as Coastal moves to a new location uh, where we're going to be more visible and to, the, to our culture, and if we, as we have more of a platform to engage the culture about the gospel, we can respond in one of four ways when, when the gospel is met with hostility. We can, we can either panic and, and, and look at everybody who disagrees with us as opponents to be trampled on or, or yelled at. Or we can, we can say, thank God Jesus is coming back soon and, and disengage completely from the culture and, and wait for the chance of escape. Or we can, we can compromise the truth of God's word to, to alleviate the, the pressure that, that we feel in the, in the here and now. Or we can stand boldly as the Apostle Paul and Timothy and the rest of the disciples did in their culture when they loved people enough to, ma- to make absolute statements about sin, about Christ, and about the conduct of the local church. And when we do that, if we do that, if we're a church that does that, we can do it with confidence knowing that we stand with a great cloud of witnesses, according to Hebrews chapter 12, that have gone before us and with our brothers and sisters who are all around the world faithfully heralding the, faithful, the, the gospel message, the precious good deposit that's been entrusted to us. 
And the purpose behind this series is, has been to remind you and, and to encourage you that Coastal Community Church is carefully standing on the authority of Scripture as we engage our culture lovingly and boldly about the claims, about the claims that the Bible makes about sin and about the claims of Jesus Christ resurrected and ascended. And so this morning, what we're going to do is, is look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at Paul's, the Apostle Paul's thesis to Timothy, his, his purpose for writing um, to Timothy. And, and because of that, it's necessary to, to just remember the cultural climate that the Apostle Paul is, is writing to young Timothy, his protege in. And as we, we look briefly at the culture that the Apostle Paul is writing in, I want to I encourage you to, to think about our own culture, the place that we find ourselves in now, Okay. And so before the Apostle Paul wrote these letter, uh, this letter, 1 Timothy, to um, Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, he, he gave a prophetic warning in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, to the Ephesian elders before he departed. Okay, So he spent three years with the, the, the church at Ephesus helping to shore it up and establish it, and it was time for him to depart in the book of Acts. And before he departs, he, he gives this warning um, to the, uh, the church of Ephesus. This is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And listen to this. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone, to admonish everyone with tears. Okay, so we fast forward a, a little bit of time and we arrive at First Timothy. The Apostle Paul's penned it to young Timothy. Okay, and and the Ephesian church obviously did not heed the warning that the Apostle Paul had given them, which should be a lesson for us to heed the the warning of the Apostle Paul as well. And so Paul, what, what he did to, to remedy this problem is he took his protege, he took, he took Timothy and he said, I'm gonna, I want you to go to Ephesus and I want you to pastor the church of Ephesus. And what this, this role is going to be is you're going to teach the, the, about the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, these things that I've imparted to you. You're going to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. You're going to faithfully lift Jesus up on high. You're going to rebuke false teaching and you're going to excommunicate false teachers that have trickled into the church at Ephesus. And I believe that the reason why the church of Ephesus was bombarded by false teachers and influence, beginning to be influenced by the culture, is because at one time, the church of Ephesus was influencing the culture. And hard-hearted people don't want to be influenced by the gospel. Because when a culture is influenced by the gospel, it's difficult to make a profit off of immorality. Okay, and so Timothy's here, he's established, he's, he's, he's rebuking false teachers, excommunicating false teachers, guarding the good deposit that's been entrusted to him. And somewhere along the way, Timothy, as we all would, and as we all do from time to time, he gets weary, he's exhausted from doing this. That's an exhausting ministry to constantly have to, to protect God's word and, and, to, and to protect the claims that Christ made about himself in a culture that's hostile toward it. And so because Timothy was growing weary in doing this, and, and uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, this letter to him to encourage him, and because there's times where we can grow weary in doing this, we can heed the encouragement from the Apostle Paul. And I want you to find encouragement in this statement. And if you're taking notes, this is the very first point in your notes. 
And it's, and it's an important one. Otherwise, I wouldn't have put it there. We, we don't live in unique times. The church doesn't live in, in unique times. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, what, ha- what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. I get, at, I get this question a lot. If you've been in church life, you've probably gotten this question too before. Joey, wh- where do you think we are in the end times? Where, ex- where exactly on the, on the timeline do you think we are in the end times? And I usually answer the question with asking them a question, which is, aren't we in the same place that the early church was when Christ was resurrected and ascended? It's not guesswork, right? We don't live in unique times. We're in the same exact position of of the early church. Christ is resurrected. Christ is ascended. That's where we are. And and I I think that if the church stopped looking for, for signs for the return of Christ, which we get so distracted in doing, and and, and instead focused more on engaging the culture with the gospel, we would be better stewards of the time that God's given us here. We should take comfort that, that we're in the same position as the early church with the same sins and the same struggles as we toil and, and, and strive and labor and living a life above reproach and faithfully proclaiming the gospel message to a world that's bankrupt without it. And just as God didn't spare the early church from persecution, he will not spare Christians today from persecution. Right? Sometimes we just think of the American church. We have brothers all over the world who are dying and being martyred for their faith, just like our brothers and sisters in the early church died and were martyred for their faith. We are not living in unique times. Right? We have access to the news 24-7, and we think, man, things are getting worse than they've ever been. They've always been bad. Things have always been bad. Sometimes I, I hear people say, man, if we could only get back to the early church, are you, we want to get back to the early church? You want to be burned at a stake? Right? Well, we, those times weren't good e- either, right? That's one of the reasons I know that, that God's word's true, like the... The, the heroes of the Bible, they were knuckleheads, weren't they? Right? David committing adultery, Moses and his issue. Like we, we have the, all the guys in the stories, they, they had issues and we have issues. We don't live in unique times, okay? And so it's because we're not living in a unique period of time that we can take comfort in the same encouragement that the Apostle Paul gives to young Timothy, who in turn gives it to the church of Ephesus. And this is our text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. God's word says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress, that's a fun word to say, of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And and church history believes that that was a a hymn that the early church used to, to remember the gospel. And I'll talk about that more in just a few moments, but Paul's purpose for writing Timothy this letter, according to to our passage, is so that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
Okay, so that, that's, that's the Apostle Paul's reason for, for writing this, this letter to, to Timothy. And so let's dissect this passage a little bit so that we as Coastal Community Church can be encouraged by it as well. Okay, the first thing we need to notice out of verse 15, and I'm, I'm kind of going out of order strategically here because I think this, we need to look at this before we move any further. Okay, the church is not a human institution. Okay, the church is not a human institution. The, the Apostle Paul uses this language carefully here. He, he, he describes the church as the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Right? It's not something that a, a man came up with getting up really early on Sunday mornings. Right? This, is, this is something that, that God established here. The, ch- the church has been established by God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's everlasting and it's victorious, even over the most hostile of cultures, right? In, in Matthew chapter 13, toward the end of that chapter, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a small mustard seed. And he said that the small mustard seed, it grows and it grows and it grows into this, this big tree. That's the kingdom of God. And picture this, as, as, the, as the church is faithful to proclaiming the gospel to the nations, we're taking this mustard seed sovereignly given to us, this responsibility given to us by God Almighty, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. And we don't have to, we don't have to hope that it's going to happen. Like, it's, it's not something that God's called us to, that we're laboring, and we're, we're toiling in, and we're like, man, I, I, hope, I hope this is going to be victorious. It is going to be victorious. God's ordained it to be victorious. God established his church. Man didn't establish his church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, we see Jesus interacting with Peter at Caesarea Philippi. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And I love this response of Simon Peter here. So Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. He said, blessed, he blessed him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise the Lord for that, right? I had this opportunity, I had the opportunity several years ago to study church history in Israel. And I got to stand where this interaction between um, Jesus and Peter took place and, um, and at Caesarea Philippi, there's this, where this interaction happened behind where Jesus would have been talking to Peter. There was this place in the side of a, like a mountain. It was this cave and it was, um, it was this, this scary looking cave. And, and in ancient Near East culture, the time that, that Jesus was communicating this to Peter, there were, uh, it, this place was known as the gates of hell. And so reading this text to me, I'm assuming that, that Jesus is talking about uh, hell, the, the eternal place of torment hell. And, and I'm not saying that he wasn't, but that wasn't all he was communicating. He was also talking about the place behind him. And it was this place where pagan worshipers took children and killed them and offered them up to their pagan gods. Isn't that horrific? Right? That, that's, that's, that, it was this place known as the gates of hell that people were terrified of in ancient Near East culture. And so what Jesus was saying to Peter was this place that's dark and horrific and terrible where, all, where children are murdered, even that place can't prevail against my church and against the confession that I'm the Messiah. 
All right, imagine Jesus saying that in our times. We don't live in unique times, do we? All right, our, our government gives half a billion dollars to the slaughtering and dismemberment of children in the abortion mill Planned Parenthood every single year. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. The pagans sacrifice children to their gods in worship, and we sacrifice our children to our gods of family planning or whatever other label that we give it. And I don't say this to be flippant, and it's, it's, it's crazy to me that this could even come across as political. The murdering of children come across as political is disgusting to me. And if you're a woman that's in here who's had an abortion, we, we're so glad that you're here with us fellow sinners who, who are also repenting of our sin and trusting and believing the gospel. And I pray that you, you do the same and that you find forgiveness for that. That's my hope for you. But I bring, I bring up abortion in our culture to point out that our culture's sins are nothing new. And as horrific as, as murdering children and selling their, their parts for profit is, the kingdom of God is so much more powerful than that. And Jesus saying that, that he's saying that not even the most horrific place imaginable will prevail over my church. So as the mustard seed of the kingdom of God grows, as Christians, we're called to call out sin boldly and herald the person and work of Jesus Christ loudly, giving everyone within earshot an opportunity to repent of their sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and trust in the person and work of Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And Jesus promises to build his church. And here's the crazy thing. The apostles in the early church they actually believed him. How crazy is that, right? They actually believed that when Christ said he was going to build his church, that he's actually going to build his church. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21 says this, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And the household of God, the same expression that we see in our text, right? Built, get this, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, okay? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, Hey, the church is, a, is an institution inaugurated and preserved by God Almighty. And no matter the cultural climate, God promises to build his church. And he commands us in scripture, according to Matthew chapter 28, to be a part in building his kingdom. And, and, and here's the great thing. Again, God, he, he isn't attempting to build his kingdom. He isn't hoping that it's going to prevail over sin and the, and the darkness that consumes our culture. And we're not called to evangelize non-believers as if we're trying to elect Jesus into office. The victory's won. The victory's won. We're calling people to realize what's already true. Christ is king and he is seated at the right hand of God and we're heralding that message to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. 
We're going through the streets, if you will, and we're throwing open these cellar doors because the people who are in rebellion against God are living in the cellars because they think that there's a storm outside and they're in their sin and they think that's all there is in life and they're covering their heads with blankets because they're, they're, they're scared of what's outside. And, and we, as, as, as heralds of, of the gospel message, we're going through the streets and we're throwing open these cellar doors and we're saying, there is no storm. Christ is, it, it, come out. The, the bad weather's gone. The sun's shining. Enjoy the, the, the warmth of the sun with us. The sun's out. Them coming out of the cellar doesn't make the sun being out any brighter or any warmer. The sun is out. Come and, come and enjoy it with us. That's what we're calling people to do when we faithfully herald the gospel message. And it's because of that promise that Christ is building his church and our commission to, to herald that message that Christians should behave in a way that reflects the gospel. Christians should behave in a way that reflects the gospel. So look with me again. <clears throat> Paul's writing Timothy so that, verse 15, he may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, oftentimes we can, we can get this wrong in, in one or two ways and with the best of intentions, okay? Um, sometimes we get it wrong by presenting the gospel as if, okay, listen, you don't have your stuff together. I have my stuff together. Be more like me and then you can come in to the body. Sometimes we, we present the gospel that, that way, right? Get your stuff together and look the way that, that I look, smell the way that I smell, think the way that I think. And, and then welcome to the family. Um, and and that's, that's, not, that's not right. That's anti-scripture, okay? And then, and then we go the other way with it because we want to rebel. We, we kind of grew up in this legalistic setting, works-based salvation type stuff, and, and we know that's not right. And so what we run as far as we can in the opposite direction and, and the very mention of effort or works or do good or be good, and you have the... Uh, legalism police that stop you at the pass, right? I think that the biblical way, the proper perspective is, is our good works should be fueled and motivated by gratefulness for the gospel. Our good works should be fueled and motivated by, by gratefulness of the gospel, right? The gospel has to be the umbrella over our good works, if we're to have any longevity, right? If we're, if we're to have any, the, the gospel has to be the umbrella over our good works. If we're to have any longevity in our repentance of sin, which is the putting off of the old self. If we're to, 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 to trust in Christ, which is putting on the new self. And if we're to have longevity in, in our ministry of proclaiming God's word in our families and our jobs and our communities and in our local church, like the gospel has to fuel that. Otherwise, and, it, and it's not good works, and we say this a lot around here. Good works are, aren't making God more happy with us. It's not earning us a right standing before God. Our good works are, the Apostle Paul calls them like filthy rags before a holy God. We, we can't do anything that's pleasing to God. And so what we do is we admit that and confess that and we look to Jesus Christ, who's our only righteousness, right? We sing a song, Lord, I need you. And a, and a part of the lyrics in that song is, you're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. We're, we're looking to Jesus as, as the, it, only God could please the demands of God. 
So we trust in God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to earn our right standing before God the Father. And it's because we know we're incapable of doing anything good out of a gratefulness would mean God loved a sinner like Joey. God loved a sinner like me so much. He set his affections on me. He brought me to life into relationship with God. Then now I'm, I can't shut my mouth about it. I have to go and tell people in word and in deed about the precious gospel message. And this summer, we've spent a lot of time about the, the works part of, of what we should look like. Uh, and if you've missed it, I'd encourage you to check out our website or download our app in the App Store. But I want to dig down into motive. Okay, and here's the question if you're taking notes that I want to spend some time on. Why is gospel-centered behavior important in the life of a Christian? Why is gospel-centered behavior important in the life of a Christian? Our, pastor, our passage says this. It's because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And what does a pillar and buttress do? Anybody know? And a, a buttress isn't a mattress for your butt. <laughs> Just go ahead and clear the air on that. And they, they support and they hold up a structure, right? At, at the time that this letter was written, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world um, was called the Temple of Diana, and it, it, was, in, it was in Ephesus, okay? And, and I want to give you just a description of, of it really quick from, from one theologian. He describes the Temple of Diana, um, which was a goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus, as this. One of its features was its pillars. It contained 127 pillars, every one of them the gift of a king. All were made of marble, and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. Okay, so, so each pillar was this beautiful tribute to the king that had provided the, uh, the pillar. But its primary f- function was to hold up the structure. Okay? It played a very important role um, other than just its beauty. Okay? And so I want you to get what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Okay? Because Timothy and the church of Ephesus, they would have gotten this immediately because they're living in this time. And so it kinda, we don't see it as clearly. But this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Christians are beautiful tributes and witnesses because of the Imago Dei and because God through Jesus has set his affections on us, okay? Christians are beautiful tributes and witnesses to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and should behave in a way that reflects the gospel because our lives are a testimony to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we're to support and lift this truth on high. That's what that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And so the Apostle Paul was using this illustration that the Ephesians would have understood immediately to remind Timothy of his job uh, as a follower of Christ. Bill Mounts, he's a New Testament Greek scholar. He says this, individually as Christians, we become pillars in the temple of God when we remain faithful to death. So you, Coastal Community Church, you're pillars in, in, in our Hampton Roads community to, to our neighbors to those that we serve in missions, to those that we serve in ministry here, to our families and to our friends. And as beautiful pillars, we have no other option but to support the structure. Right? God, God has, he has sovereignly and lovingly put us in this position. And thank God we don't, we don't support the structure on our own. You can look around and see that. But we stand with other pillars here now, all throughout church history and with our brothers and sisters all around the world that are there to support when we falter and crack, knowing ultimately that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And so what exactly is, is, is this truth that, that we're lifting up in word and in deed, right? Actions are important. 
but they don't amount to anything unless we attribute what the actions are for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We got we to speak the gospel with our lips. Otherwise, we're just doing stuff. But verse 16, look with me, our, our final passage here this morning. Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The truth is a God-centered proclamation of the gospel that truly sets men free. Look with me in this verse. Right here in this verse, the Apostle Paul, right at the beginning, he says, the mystery of godliness is kind of how his first description of this truth, right? He used that earlier in chapter 3. I preached on that a few weeks ago. But the difference between mystery in our culture and mystery in the Bible is that mystery in our culture means knowledge withheld. Mystery in the Bible means truth revealed. So the Apostle Paul, he's indicating to us that this mystery he's about to explain, it's something great, right? It's something beyond our wildest imagination. It's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. I like how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which, by the way, is an incredible tool to teach your children the gospel. But she says this. She says, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. And the Apostle Paul doesn't keep us in suspense long. This is the truth teased out here. And we're just going to kind of tear this passage apart. Okay, it was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed, on, pro- proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay, and this was most likely an early church hymn that was used to, um, as a tool to, to help the, uh, the people singing it to remember the gospel through melody and rhythm, which we do here every single week at Coastal Community Church. But the very first thing that we see is that he, Jesus, okay, is who we're talking about, if you hadn't caught on yet, the, um, he was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Okay, this is it's talking about the incarnation here. Right? Jesus is 100% God, and what he did was add 100% man to the 100% God. He didn't decree, he didn't bow, dial back the, the God part so that he could take on the man part. He's simultaneously 100% man, 100% God, and that's how it's always been. He, he's existed before time began, okay? And so this passage isn't talking about Jesus being created. It's talking about God being made known and visible to us, okay? John 1, 14 through 16 solidifies this position when it says, and the word of God became what? Try it one more time. And the word of God became flesh, all right? And dwelt among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And listen at this, John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. And this is interesting, because he was before me. For from him, from, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So Jesus Christ existed before time began, added the 100% man to the 100% God, was born of a virgin, 
lived a perfect life, God made known to us. Emmanuel, God with us, right? Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus performed many um, miracles um, in his life, things that that were outside of the norm for people to see. Miracles weren't as common as we like to think that they were. And, he, 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 and these miracles had a purpose, and they were to certify the claims that he made about himself. It was to demonstrate his sovereignty and his divinity to a culture that had a hard time believing he was God. And even in the end, they rejected his miracles, right? We, we look for miracles all the time or for signs. These people were seeing miracles, and they still rejected Jesus Christ because of their hard hearts, okay? And so how did we see, how did their, their, their resistance toward God manifest itself, toward Jesus manifest itself? It manifested itself when they found him guilty of blasphemy and they put him on a cross and they crucified him. When I have conversations with Jehovah's Witness, I like to ask, I ask them one question, and it's why did the Jews kill Jesus? Why did the Jews crucify Jesus? They didn't crucify him because he was a good guy. They didn't crucify him because he was laying his hands on people and healing people. Right? They didn't crucify him because he was a prophet. They crucified him because he claimed to be God. And they said, that's blasphemy. We're going to kill you. That's why the crucifixion happened. And so he, he was crucified. People rejected him. And then God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, vindicated him. This is how he vindicated them. He raised Jesus from the dead, overturning the guilty verdict cast on Jesus and certifying the claims that Jesus made about himself were absolutely true absolutely true. And we can have confidence as a professing body of believers. We have this logical faith and that Jesus is who he said he is because the grave could not hold him. Romans 1, 1 through 6 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, Old Testament, looking forward to the New Testament, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, get this, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the resurrection certifies and vindicates the claims Jesus made about himself. Third, he was seen by angels. He was seen by angels. Angels announced his birth to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds. They ministered to Jesus after his temptation with Satan. They strengthened him before his crucifixion at the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels observed him at his his death and at his resurrection. An angel rolled away the stone from the tomb in Matthew 28 too. And angels appeared to women confirming the resurrection. And finally, two angels were at Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. says, and while they, the disciples, were gazing into heaven, as he went, Jesus went up into heaven, behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? I said, what are you doing, you knuckleheads? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he was seen by angels. 
He's seen by angels. He was feared by demons. Next, he was proclaimed among the nations. He's proclaimed among the nations. After Christ ascended into heaven, uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, came and dwelt in believers. And we, we know that as what? It's Pentecost. Yeah, we know that it's, it's Pentecost. And, and, and that became the, the fuel. If you read the book of Acts, which is an account of the early church, the spread of the gospel, okay? If you want to know the origins of the church, read the book of Acts. Right? And, we, and we see the, the, the gospel go out to all the nations. And, and we see this specifically fulfilled in Acts as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, right? The Jews thought, man, this is just for us. Heck with everybody else. That's never been God's plan. God is a, he's, a, he's the God of the nations, reaching every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so we see in Acts, Cornelius, the first Christian Gentile, the first convert there, and the Jews begin to realize, man, there's some other people included in this this thing going on here. And so we, we see that, that he was proclaimed among the nations. As, and, and, and then we even see Peter in Acts 2 alone, he preaches the resurrected and ascended Christ. And we see 3,000 souls come to faith that day. It's incredible. The origins of our church, our origins. He was believed on in the world. It's the next, the next part. He was believed on in the world. Hey, this, this is the, the effect of a faithful gospel proclamation. Hey, the, the gospel went out and is going out to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We, we serve a God of the nations. And that's always been the case. That's always been God's plan. It didn't change with the new covenant. That was his plan before time began to be a God of the nations. And God is successfully saving his flock as the church faithfully proclaims the gospel. I was thinking when I was writing this, this sermon, a lot of times we, we talk about uh, technology and how it can be a distraction. And, and it's certainly, a, a, um, we have problems with technology being a distraction uh, from important things that we should be doing. But, but God is sovereign even over technology. We knew technology was going to exist. We, we have the ability now to get the gospel and gospel-centered resources out to people that it was a lot more difficult to reach than ever before. Isn't that incredible? We serve a God who's sovereign and using and redeeming technology to reach the nations because we serve a global God. Finally, he was taken up into glory. And this is a reference to, to the ascension of Christ. He ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of, of God the Father, presently reigning over the earth. Right? We're, we're, not, we're not waiting for Jesus to be king. We're not waiting for Jesus to be king. We're, we're, we're calling people to acknowledge what's already true, and their acknowledgement of it doesn't make it any more true. It's true, right? We're inviting them out of the cellars and into the light to enjoy the sun because Christ is victorious in his life and his death and his resurrection for us. Hebrews 8.1, we see this picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand. He says, now the point and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And listen at this. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, the author shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of, he quotes Psalm 110, which describes Melchizedek. Okay, so 
Melchizedek was a, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ before Christ. And so we see the fulfillment of Psalm 110 here in Hebrews chapter 10 when it's credited to Jesus Christ. This is what the Hebraic author says. He says, And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then here his tone shifts. I love this. But when Christ had offered for all time, not for a little bit, but for all time, your past, your present, and your future, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down. It's finished. It ain't still going. It's finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so how are the enemies being conquered? How are the enemies being conquered? through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. That's how the enemies are being conquered. We're part of a successful plan. That mustard seed is growing into a tree as the church is who she ought to be, faithfully guarding the good deposit that's been entrusted to you and entrusted to me. And because Christ is victorious over sin, draw strength and be bold, and engage our culture with the gospel. One pastor says this in regards to our First Timothy passage. He says, in six short stanzas, stanzas, this hymn summarizes the gospel. God became man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honored by angels and feared by demons. And he ascended into heaven. And this message was preached all over the world and many believed and were saved. And that is the heart of the message. And it's our mission to proclaim it to the world. I want to make a resource available, actually two resources. Um, one is in your bulletin in the devotional section. I wrote about uh, um, an evangelism book that I think is one of the best books on evangelism um, available today, just to equip yourself. And you can go to our website and you'll find a link there. The thing in the bulletin explains how to do it. But um, uh, there's another resource if you go to our website, coastalcommunitychurch.net slash evangelism, or you look at our homepage, Southern Seminary has given us this resource to offer to you absolutely free. It's this 96-page book on evangelism, and it, and it goes over why you should evangelize and how to evangelize, because what we want to be is we don't want to just gather right here, and this is as deep as we get. We, we, we need to be self-feeders, and this needs to be an overflow of a life that's committed to Jesus Christ with our spiritual disciplines, one-on-one with the Lord, and, and so uh, be faithful at, at being a self-feeder. Equip yourself um, so that you can be an effective tool for the glory of God and uh, as you, as you faithfully, faithfully proclaim the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you made yourself known to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ and that you faithfully call sinners to be saints through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for saving sinners like me. And thank you for what you're doing in this church. God, I pray that, that out of a gratefulness of the gospel, Lord, that, that, that we wouldn't shut our mouths about what you've done, but we would sing loudly, um, God, your redemption song to a, to a world that's lost and dying without it, God. And so thank you for salvation. Thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you for your kingdom that you're building from a mustard seed to a great tree and our role that we play, um, God, as pillars Um, who support this truth. And we pray all this in the only name that saves, Jesus Christ. Amen.
If you would like to talk more about the gospel, um, or if you would like somebody to pray with you, there's going to be a prayer team. They'll be wearing purple shirts that are going to be probably not sitting up here, but standing up here in just a few minutes that they would love to, um, to pray with you and to talk more about what God's doing in your life. We're going to transition now into our offertory time. If you're a guest with us, we don't want you to feel any pressure or obligation to give. This is just another way that God's church fuels uh, the Great Commission by giving um, of her resources financially so that the kingdom of God can be funded properly so that we can reach every tribe and every tongue and every nation with the gospel. What we would ask of you is that you would take the tear off that's in your bulletin and you would just write your name and some contact information and drop it into the offering plate. We don't want to pester you. We just want to send you a thank you card for joining us today. And with that, I will turn it over to Joel and the team.